In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. After Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, uh, amazingly, the uh, Pharisees uh, and the rulers in in Israel, or in Jerusalem, decided to assassinate uh, Lazarus. Not sure what their thinking was on that. That doesn't seem very clear, does it? The guy is raised from the dead, and now he stands uh, against us, and people are going to Jesus because of it. Well, let's kill him uh, again. Uh, anyway, that's the way they're thinking these days, those days, these days as well, too, probably. Uh, and, and, and so after raising him from the dead, Jesus heads over to Jerusalem, which is approximately like if we were to head over to Crozet, uh, because Bethany is right up against Jerusalem. It's not a far distance uh, at all. It's easily walked in uh, two or three hours. Uh, and that was the Passover. Then when the people realized uh, that, that uh, Jesus uh, had come to this Passover, they went out with palms and branches, crying out, Blessed is the King of Israel that cometh in the name of the Lord. All of that highly likely because of his raising of Lazarus uh, from the dead so, uh, so recently. Of course, all of his other miracles. The ruling elite didn't like this at all. Uh, and they had already attempted to arrest Jesus and failed, as we know, several times. He would just walk off, uh, and, and they were unable to apprehend him, uh, and they wouldn't until he was ready, and this Passover, he was ready. It was his time. When Jesus betrayed him in the garden, a band of Roman soldiers formally arrested him, uh, shackled him, and then turned him over to the Jewish authorities. But before the night was out, uh, the uh, temple rulers would hand him back uh, to the Romans in, in a very legal, uh, uh, formal uh, manner. Uh, so much so that Caesar, through these soldiers, took custody of Jesus. Caesar took custody of the Word made flesh. And then, by what we know, what we call 9 a.m., uh, Caesar nailed him to the cross. And by 3 p.m., he was dead, which is again amazing because. Frequently, people would hang on a cross for several days uh, before they died. But uh, in, in, in one sense, they didn't kill him after all. Jesus gave his life up to his Father. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. Uh, it, it wasn't that they took his life from him against his will. 26 years later, think about that. 26 years, not that long. 26 years later, St. Paul wrote to the Christians in Philippi, and he quoted a hymn that they knew because it was part of their liturgy. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of sinful man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now that's the hymn that Paul's quoting, a hymn that they're all familiar with. 
in this litur- part of their liturgical life. And in that hymn, Paul uh, and, and the uh, uh, Christians of Philippi are declaring that Jesus uh, Christ, this man that were, uh, was nailed to the cross by, by Caesar, uh, is in and of himself God Almighty. That's what that hymn's declaring. Who being in the form of God, the word translated form speaks of formal cause. Ever since Aristotle, everybody had this drilled into their heads that a formal cause is not merely an outward invisible form. It is also the very essential nature of the thing. Who being in the form of God, who being God in and of himself, It doesn't mean that he appears to be God. It doesn't mean that Christ was uh, being in the form of God, uh, was like God or similar to God, or that he only appears to be God. When the church of Philippi sang, who being in the form of God, they meant that Jesus Christ was in fact the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they use that very same word again. In the same hymn, in a different verse, when they say, And he took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of sinful man. Same thing. He really, it wasn't that he appeared to be a servant, or appeared to be in the likeness of sinful man, but that he really and truly was made man. And that's, this is what it means. Uh, are y'all listening? Jesus Christ is God. God Almighty, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Son of the Father, the Word of the Father. And this God became a real human being without ceasing to be God. He has always been God. He always will be God. He can't stop being God. But he has not always been a human being. He became a human being, though, just like all of us, he had a mother. It wasn't a trick. He didn't come down from heaven like Venus on the half shell. He didn't burst from uh, Zeus's head. Who was that? Yeah, he didn't do that either. It wasn't magic. It wasn't wasn't a, a, a myth. It was really the case that a woman named Mary was impregnated by the Holy Ghost, and that that she gave birth to, was a word of the Father and the Son of Mary at the same time. He became a human being like all of us. In fact, when God became flesh, he became Mary's flesh because he received from her his humanity. And sure as you are the flesh of your mother, God became the flesh of his mother, thus the church's august title for Mary, Theotokos, the mother of God. Besides that, the blood that flowed down the cross, the blood that stained that red banner, the blood that flowed from his side when the Roman soldier pierced his side was blood from his mother. Real human blood, not made from fiat, but made biologically just like ours is made. Are you with me? This is exactly what the Bible teaches, and it's weird as I'll get out, but it's absolutely true. 
He didn't disguise himself as a human being. He became one of us, a real human being, real man, fragile, just like as fragile as we are with all of our contingencies, all the contingencies beset other human beings. How fragile? Well, eventually the Roman authorities of his own will put him to death. That's how fragile. God became flesh not to animate a piece of flesh to disguise his true identity, to speak from behind a mask of human flesh. He became really and truly one of us. Furthermore, God's human flesh, his human nature, is this very moment part of the divine life in heaven, and it always will be. He didn't shed his human nature at the ascension. He took his true human nature. Let me tell you something. If he had shed his human nature, we should worry about that. Because that means there's no place in heaven for human nature. The very fact that he didn't shed his human nature, but took his human nature with him forever hypostatically united to the word in heaven tells us that there's a place for us too. We're fit for heaven. We're fit for the divine life. We're fit for incarnation. Also, I want you to understand the incarnation was not merely a response to sin. Absolutely, absolutely not a response to sin. It's not like God said, oh my gosh, what happened there? You know, I wasn't expecting that. I'm God, but I have my limits too. No, he doesn't have any limits. He wasn't surprised by sin. And the incarnation is something he had planned all along. Because that's the only way we can be divinized. Divinized means we really become his children. You think he doesn't call us his children? He never calls us his pets, right? He never says, my little pet, like I would say to Duke, my dog. He doesn't say, you're my little pet, my little lap pup. He does, you're his children. Take that seriously. Take the fact that he calls you his children, God's children, seriously and literally. He means it. He's making you his children, and he's doing, that means divine, without destroying your humanity. You're not going to be divine like God, all God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Ghost, because they don't have a beginning, they're God by nature. But he is infusing us with his nature, so that one day, as St. Paul says, you know, and then, you know, faith here, there remains faith, hope, and charity, greatest of these is what? Charity, and until then, and the until then he's talking about is when we behold the divine nature itself face to face. And then he says, and then we will know even as we are known. What do you think that means? It means that you're going to see God, as it were, through God's own eyes. It doesn't, it means not just seeing this wonder and splendor through human, human eyes, which we will, because our humanity is never destroyed. Grace doesn't destroy nature. Grace perfects nature. And part of our perfection is going to be the divinization of our nature, our humanity, so that we will actually see God Almighty face to face through his own eyes.
We hit the jackpot. I mean, that's, we hit the jackpot of all jackpots. We got the big door prize. And we did nothing to get it. That's what, it, that's what this is all about. That's what God is doing in the whole world, in the whole universe. There's a teaching sometimes that, that we hear around this time of year, uh, which is the idea of philicopa. That is the idea that the fall was the, the happy fault, the happy sin. Let me tell you something. There's nothing good about sin. There's nothing good about the fall. The incarnation, God, this is God's plan already. Not because of sin. He just didn't let sin get in his way. Sin didn't stop him from accomplishing what he meant to accomplish all along. Are y'all with me? So let's get back to this text real quickly. We'll finish this up in a page and a half. Uh, having, having garnered his strength from his father in the garden, uh, Jesus then opened himself up passively, completely, to Satan's final assault. And this is a sickening, it's sickening. And it's love. As Jesus suffered as no man can possibly suffer. He suffered as true God, who knows the exquisite perfection. I mean, it would be hell for us, wouldn't it? I mean, think about it. To go through the crucifixion would be hell for anybody, much less the scourging uh, before that and the crown of thorns. But this isn't just any man. This is a perfect man. This is the God-man himself. And so our suffering of that same event can't even be compared to the experience of suffering that the God-man endured. Each lash, each blow, each iron nail driven into his hands was known to him and experienced with exquisite perfection. Because he's true God, his agony, his experience of pain and passion is simply beyond our horizon, beyond our comprehension. As is his love for us, beyond our comprehension and beyond our horizon. And yet it is that love what does St. Paul say? What turns you to repentance? St. Paul, Romans. The love of God leadeth you to repentance. It's the love of God that, not fear, it's not fear of hell that leadeth you to repentance. It's the love of God. St. Paul says that anyway. I'll go with him. He's inspired by the Holy Ghost. It's the love of God that leadeth you to repentance. And it continues to lead us, and it lures us. It lures us on, and we follow it on into the horizon of God Almighty himself, where the scales fall off, and we see the world and everyone else with the love and the beauty 
that God sees us all and this whole creation with. Palm Sunday commemorates Jesus' glory and his love. The young man whose flesh uh, was ripped and who was nailed to the cross is God Almighty. And his flesh, his body, became the place of judgment. Like the Bema seat, it's the place of judgment. It's not the Bema seat. It's not the courthouse any longer. It's not the arena. It's the body of Jesus that has become the place of judgment and also the place of blessing. He did this because he loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Absolutely true. And he loves his father. He emptied himself for that reason and now you and I are called empty ourselves out of gratitude and love for him and for other people. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost.